0: On today's more than a test we have dr kyla johnson tremell dr johnson tremell has been the superintendent at oakland unified school district for seven years and before that she basically did every other job in the district teacher assistant principal principal head of talent head of leadership network superintendent you name it she's done it and now she is sticking by her district and leading it and i will tell you right now i have never left a conversation more energized and exhausted she is a fierce fiery human who has so much great energy and great advice for us all, but she is also dealing with an incredibly diverse and intense and valuable and amazing population of students, parents, and teachers that are Oakland Unified School District. We are so lucky that she was willing to spend an hour with us because she's got a lot on her plate. Welcome with me, Dr. Johnson Trammell. Dr. Johnson Trammell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's it's really exciting because you are the superintendent of Oakland Unified School District. And I think anybody who has any kind of experience in Northern California has an image of Oakland. But when I was reading about your district, it is even more than I expected. Just the diversity and the amount of um, different communities that are involved, the amount of different kinds of schools. What does Oakland mean to you? Oakland,
1: one, is home. Um, This is where I've been born and raised. um, So it definitely has a special place in my heart. Um, I think as an educator, I love to say that our our gift and the beauty of the city, which is the diversity, diversity in terms of race, ethnicity, language, socioeconomic status, perspective is our gift. Um, And it's also one of the greatest challenges when you're trying to make a city work, right? With so much uh, diversity in terms of perspective and need.
0: It's interesting you bring this up because I was shocked. If you had asked me to guess, I would have never guessed that 60% of the children in Oakland Unified are socioeconomically disadvantaged. And I don't think most people realize just that that's the reality you're dealing with. Um, Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, the wonderful thing about data is it depends on which kind of data set you're looking at. It can be up to like 77% if you're looking at free and reduced lunch. If you're thinking about the amount of unhoused students we have fostering the students we have, um, and similar to some of the challenges that you see playing out in New York, which is some of the surge in newcomers, we've really been um, a home, right? In a place where many newcomers have come for close to um, a decade. So again, um, when you think about the diversity and the range, right, of, of, of need from our families that are privileged, right? And choose to be in a place because they value diversity. And they see that as a prerequisite to their children being able to engage and be productive citizens in a world that is global at this point. And our families who have many economic challenges, but students that are just as brilliant. So it really is uh, an ambidextrous kind of leadership challenge to really figure out how you pull it all together, right? And I feel like in many ways, it is the challenge of our country. How do we create democracy and inclusive um, environment for everyone? It ain't easy, but that's, that's the challenge.
0: (laughs) It is a challenge. I didn't realize the newcomer situation or the, the, all the newcomers was also impacting Oakland. I was in New York city in May last year when they had recently taken a lot of new um, students. And I was in a first grade classroom with 46 kids in it because they just, they they did the system wasn't working out. And so kids were kind of just being thrown into classrooms. And I was supposed to be doing a training for those teachers. And I was like, here's the deal. I'm a certified teacher for one day. I'll teach instead. Let's split the class like 46. <laughs> is that the kind of experience you're talking about where kids are, it's so many kids and overflowing classrooms or what is it looking like in Oakland?
1: Well, because we have have um, had the opportunity and, and the gift of really being able to serve our newcomer students, we've really kind of in true Oakland fashion, um, startup fashion have like developed infrastructure um, I have a wonderful um, executive director of our English Language Learner Multi-Achievement, we call it ELMA for short, Office, Nicole Knight is her name, she's been leading this office in this division for a while. We have an, uh, basically a newcomer and international community school, Um we actually have a couple of sites. At first, we were placing students whether, wherever there was space, fiscally as we began to understand from a per pupil perspective right, it's costing more. You're not necessarily gaining the revenue because many times kids are coming in October or November, so they may be coming after you're getting your counts. And then when you're thinking about the needs, right, same academic needs as many other students, but some of the partnership in terms of being from a refugee community. So how are we connecting students, some that are coming without their families, um, unaccompanied minors, Some that are coming with, they may need legal assistance, other sorts of mental health supports if they're coming from war-torn countries. So after understanding the context, starting to build infrastructure so that we could figure out how to serve better, how to plan better, how to staff better, how to think about master schedule. We want the kids to get in ELD, but many of these kids, if they get the right support, what would stop them from being at MIT? So we don't wanna create segregated schools. Um, So we really have developed infrastructure and we've learned that the wax and wane because just because you might get a surge one year, there may be a decrease the next year, depending on the politics of the country. Um, And we've done our own advocacy at the state level as
0: well, so. So you mentioned something interesting and I know I'm not, people who are not educators may not realize that like there's a count day. And then that number of students in your district on that day is the money that you get from the state. That's right. That's how we're funded. Um, and so when right. children come later, which they often do, you are accepting a child. You are going to educate that child. You're going to provide resources to that child. And you're not going to get funding because that money has, has already been doled out. How are you feeling how, how does anyone fill that gap? how do you How do you possibly serve the needs of a child when you can't get those funds from the state because the date has passed?
1: I would say the same way you've got maybe families that are you know, living lean and you're still figuring out how you keep shelter and how you make sure that your kids feed, right? It's scrappy, you're innovative, you're creative. Um, we've had a wonderful partnership with Salesforce as an example, close to a decade. It's been focused mainly on middle schools, but one of the areas within middle schools has been our newcomer population. And so being able to have long-term, I'm a big believer in long-standing, meaningful partnerships, right? Not like one and done, but like meaningful partnerships so that you can have a vision, you can really develop the infrastructure and become more strategic in terms of the support. So having these things within middle school with Salesforce and being able to fund social workers, right? That's one way we've been able to fill the gap. Another thing, because of some of my brilliant leaders in that department is working with our lobbyists and really sharing our story, knowing what's happening in Oakland, it's going to happen in other areas. And we're seeing it across the nation so that people can see what are the implications in terms of policy and some of the supports, right? As we have families um, that need places for kids to go to school in other parts of the state and other parts of the country.
0: I feel like you say it with such confidence and like a calm, which is probably why people love you as a leader. But like the reality of what you're talking about, of lots of children coming in, not having the funding, being able to have long-term partnerships with companies like Salesforce is no small feat. So just kudos to you for like the energy you bring to it. And that this idea of being like entrepreneurial is so valuable. It's, it's surprising. It's lovely to hear you talk about being entrepreneurial. You're in Northern California. That makes sense. But I'll be honest, when I was reading um, about Oakland, a theme continued to come up in every single article. and I'll give you an example. I was reading an article about the early start in Oakland. like parents were complaining about like kids were going getting going to school too early. And the article was about how the t- the start time is a negotiation between the district and the teachers' union. And this is the theme I saw over and over again. The teachers' union is a big player. So you're entrepreneurial and also dealing with, a less than entrepreneurial organization that sometimes, you know, teachers unions are a little bit old school or whatever. Tell me about that relationship and that experience. Cause I I do think it's somewhat unique in Oakland or or at least the emphasis is pretty unique.
1: Yeah. I would say, you know, one thing to understand Oakland really well is our roots are activism, right? Our city is really grounded and rooted in activism. When you think about right. Black Panther um, party, Um, And a lot of their work is what spawned what we now take for granted as our free and reduced lunch program. The genesis of that actually is from the Black Panther Party and a lot of what they did to actually feed kids. There's a lot of ideas from that um, that our government was like, you know what? We should actually do that. And so in terms of trying to get anything accomplished in Oakland, it's usually spicy, so you just have to kind of know that, right? Um, it's always theatrical. You just have to own that. Um, but back to the diversity being the beauty and the challenge, you just have to develop that skill set as a leader where you have to listen to multiple voices. And our labor is one of those voices, right? And I think when you look at across industry, particularly with a lot of the strikes that you see going on, we have to figure out. we deal with economic inequality, right? We have to figure out like how we adjust to preparing people for this workforce that's just changing at an exponential pace with what we're seeing with technology. And so we have to be inclusive. We have to have dialogue. I'm a big believer that partnership isn't just with people that think the same way as you. It's about how you create that divergent space. So, is it easy? No. Is it stressful? Yes. But we can't become the country we all want to be without kind of going through, right, this struggle and growing pains of like, who do we want to be when we grow up? If we say we want to be an inclusive, you know, environment, we want to make sure we have a competitive workforce for the jobs that are going to be available, and labor um, is a part of that. And I do think labor needs to evolve, um, but so do our systems. Our public school systems need to evolve as well.
0: Is that why you lead in Oakland? Because I think that there, I, I am sure there are moments where you've thought somewhere else would be easier, right? Where like the superintendent has a little more power, the district, you know, it, I don't think that it's common that you'll see in articles in every district where it's like the, the district and the, and the union has to have to negotiate the start time of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and so is that why you've chosen is that you actually believe in this methodology? Because it, it seems a, really intense to me and stressful.
1: Well, it's definitely both. Um, Again, I think seeing a lot of tension rising across the country. Now we might be more at the extreme. And again, I come back to some of the origins and the flavor of the culture of our city, right? Period, because it plays out whether it's school board, it plays out sometimes, um, you know, in terms of our our city meetings as well. Um, But I think some of the issues that play themselves out in, in Oakland you do see in, in other parts of the country as well. They may be calmer, but the the issue, the root of the tension, is is, is still there. And I think if you just kind of look at the attrition rate of superintendents, particularly post pandemic, that's evidence, right, that it's not just this outlier, right, in a district like Oakland. You're starting to see some of these these same themes, like parents concern around what is high quality education. You know, does my kid go from high school to a four year college? Should they get a CTE certificate? Like what does it mean for my kid to be prepared? What does it mean for a school to take on mental health, but not too much? How do we deal with staffing shortages? Like this isn't just an issue in a typical urban district, right? Large urban district. You're seeing it cut across many different types of schools now, right?
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. You and I actually met at the WLE conference, the women leading ed conference. Um, and we talked about these stats. We talked about the superintendents are just leaving at an extreme rate. Um, and I, I, I was brought back to that moment when I was watching a video of you from last April, you were talking about a strike that was possibly going to be coming to Oakland. And you were talking about, you know, the way you support teachers, but also didn't think that the strike was the right time. And I could feel the weight of what was happening in your district in that video. Like it's a two minute video, but you could feel just like it was a lot. Is is your job more stressful than you thought it would be before you had it? And what do you think causes you the most stress?
1: Absolutely. I I don't think one of the reasons for Women Leading Ed that we really focus so much on like sponsorship, right? And really having supports once you're in the job is there's only so much you can learn in a book. There's only so much you can learn before you actually are living the experience to prepare you. Um, And it's extremely stressful, you know, because at the end of the day, you're responsible for the most precious thing of people, which are their children. Right. Right. So you should expect people to be irrational and emotional because it's their baby. Um, We all know we've got financial constraints. Um, And it takes a lot of resources, both money and talent, right, to really address a lot of the inequity that we see. Um, And then you throw in whatever is happening within your city and within your nation, those things always land within schools. And we're just in a very complex, uncertain time, pandemic, global issues, those things find their way, right? into classrooms, into schools. So, you know, trying to mediate, trying to know which things are within your control, which things do you have to manage, but you may not have necessarily control over. That's what causes the stress Um, and the political demand of, there is an expectation that you're making some sort of progress every year, right? To some issues that honestly may take five, 10, 15 years to actually come up with solution. That's the essence of the stress. I think also there's a lot more we need to do, hence some of my passion for Women Leading Ed and just support for superintendents. The role has changed. It's always been a political role. Um, It may not officially be a political role, you're not an elected official, but there's always been this assumption that you need to deal with politics. I think that has just grown. Um, significantly post pandemic. And I think there's more that we need to do um, to prepare folks for what it means to deal with it, to manage it and manage it in a way where it's not crisis, right? Where you can see the forest from the trees and you pe- you can begin to use the constituents in your respective community to actually help you, right? Right because the school cannot do it alone. The teachers, the principals, the school system, these problems are so much bigger than the system. That is why, you know, for us, we're a believer in community schools, but whatever manifestation of partnership um, becomes essential, um, you know, so that teachers can stay, principals can stay, all of those sorts of things.
0: So my question was, the, the question I'm asking, because I feel like this is, keeps coming up, is that, you know, superintendents and districts are measured in, in exactly what you said. Year over year, you have to show growth. You have to show that you're getting better. And at the same time, you have teachers going on strike. You have kids coming from all over the world with a whole like set of issues or resources or not. How do you continue to make progress? Where do you, where have you seen progress? And then also put out all of these fires.
1: Well, I think it's probably fair to say um, that I don't think we definitely aren't showing the progress that I would like to see, or I imagine any large urban district um, or any school system, right, would like to see yet, because we don't really have a proof point of a system, not a school, but a system where it's like, oh yeah, we've we've eliminated the opportunity gap. Doesn't matter where a kid comes from, everyone's reading, uh, reaching proficiency. So I think for systems, you absolutely need to have metrics around like absolute growth and absolute proficiency, right? Whatever that standard is. And I'm intentionally using the word whatever because I think where we are in terms of the workforce, there are other things we need to, we always need to measure literacy and numeracy. And, you know, um, I'm becoming Uh, Maybe a sand is a bit too extreme, but very curious about the implications of artificial intelligence and just technology and the implications for what is teaching and learning? What does it mean for teaching and learning? And from what I see, it actually makes literacy and numeracy even more important Um, But there are other skills that um, have kind of risen to the top that we aren't yet good at explicitly teaching, whether you're talking about creativity, you're talking about collaboration, you're talking about the importance of like data uh, analysis. Um, And so I do think there's a movement of we're not necessarily getting all we need from a standardized test to say, yes, this child is going to be successful. You can have a 5.0, you can take a bunch of AP courses, and it is very likely that you may be unemployed unless you come from a family of means that can support you. Nevertheless, if you, you know, struggle with literacy, you struggle with basic numeracy, you know, that more is still going to be an issue in terms of you being successful. So I think keeping our eye on that, Um, It's important for us to keep our eye on making sure, however you define it in your system, that kids are progressing, right, in terms of being able to graduate on track for college. Whether they go straight to a four-year university, whether they work and go to school or decide to do more of a CTE, every kid needs to be on track to graduate. And we have seen progress in terms of our graduation rate. We have seen progress in terms of our African-American students that have increased their graduation rate. Um, But we've seen slippage in terms of our chronic absences, as an example. Um, All districts, um, particularly, I mean, I follow California the most because that's my state. We've seen like doubling. And the reality is when we have um, labor action, that impacts your, your attendance rate because no one is going to school. And so if you track in a system, you know, the number of times that there's tension and you have, you know, work that stops, that is absolutely going to impact, you know, your your data. Um, and besides just the data, that obviously is going to impact access to, to student learning. Um, so absolutely, when we're dealing with many of these things, right, when you're dealing with Okay, how do you not only provide the services to students who may be coming from different places and spaces, but building the capacity for your educators to know, you know, how, how are we making sure they're equipped with the skills and the support that they need, right? To be able to educate kids who have a range of needs. Um, but all of that to say, yes, there are a lot of challenges, but you still have to be able to um, show progress Um, you know, even if you're not receiving the level of progress that you want to see on, on a yearly basis.
0: Okay. You hit on so many things that I want to ask about. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep, but keep to three questions. So my first one is you said that Oakland isn't making the progress that you wish they would. When would you say Oakland is successful?
1: Well, one, one of our longstanding challenges has been our financial struggles, And I'm a big believer that solvency and student achievement are tied. When you're struggling to be sustainable, it creates a situation where your district is in a state of crisis, similar to a household. Right. It's hard to think three years in advance if you're constantly worried about, can I pay my bill? You know, am I going to have rent over? Am I going to be able to pay for rent? We've made significant progress from being in that state, but it is no secret, right, that from an infrastructure standpoint, for the number of of students that we serve, we have more schools than we need. That has been a huge point of contention. We've made some progress in that area, not as much as, as I would like, right? And that has implications in terms of the level of investment that you can provide to each school which gets into your, your student achievement. Do you need more support in your schools around literacy? What is it that teachers need? Um, it's huge in terms of competitive salaries. The Bay Area is extremely expensive. Housing is a huge issue. Every year we have teachers who wanna come. They start looking for a place to live. I can't make it work. They go somewhere else. Um, we okay. hear that from our teachers you know, a lot. The job has become harder after the pandemic. And so as much as we need to focus on the students, I mean, again, back to partnership and partnering with people who think differently. I still listen to my teachers even during the strike. And there are some things we cannot ignore. Teachers, teachers didn't come in knowing how to support kids in mental health. That is a skill set. All of that can't be put on the teacher, although we know the mental health piece is huge, right? There has to be support for that. Like what does that look like to invest in that at scale? Are we still expecting one teacher, whether it's 20 kids or 10 kids or 30 kids to do all of these different things for kids that are in very different places after the pandemic? And so do we need to rethink the model of, you know? Is it one person or is it a village, right, that's really supporting all the different needs? How do we continue to have a system where we're we're customizing more um, so we're not relying on just one person, right, to be the everything, right, for kids to, to be successful?
0: Okay, well, you kind of mentioned AI and then you're talking about customization and a village. And so I have to ask, like, do I I read an article this week and it said something along the lines of like, we will see more change in education in the next five years than we have in the last 500 or something. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? What do you think about technology being part of that village and filling some of the gaps that teachers are trying to fill?
1: Well, it's already happening if you watch kids. Right. I mean, I'm having conversation with my own kids about ChatGPT. I mean, kids are always ahead of us, right? Because this is all nascent to them. It's the adults we're trying to catch up. they, you know, many of the kids, they grew up with an iPad with the phone. So a lot of our fear and anxiety, and, it, it, and we should, I mean, there's a lot of ethics that need to be worked out, but I do think there are a lot of conversations around, you know, what could technology do that could free the human We will always need teachers. We will always need teachers, right? Right. But can they focus more on the facilitation and some of these other skills, really thinking about how do you teach creativity? How do you explicitly teach kids to collaborate, solve problems? Like All these skills that we know a child is not going to be able to get a job, a competitive job, a job that pays well if they don't have those skills. That's where we need humans to be able to spend time. What does that look like in terms of curriculum? How do we assess that? You know, are kids making enough progress? Are some of the like foundational skills like the teaching of phonics, the teaching of phonemic awareness, right? Can we use more technology to teach that? And can that be more hybrid? I think those are the questions that we have to think about because there's definitely a lot of promise But I also know there's a a lot of fear um, because everybody thinks every job's going to be automated and every job can't be automated.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, with teachers, I think it's fear. And then I also think it's this concept. I was just talking to somebody about the Larry Cuban quote about how often... Um, new initiatives are hurled at teachers. The word he used was hurled. And I think that that, some of it is even just that fear of like, I'm going to swing. You keep talking about phonemic awareness and phonics and science of reading and getting teachers to realize this is not just a pendulum swing. This is what we actually need to do. And yes, we didn't do it right before. It's hard, right? It's hard to be the teacher in the room, always getting something new put on you. So I think, I think that's really true as well. All right. The other question, when I listen to our conversation, you and I have covered some, we've been together for like 20 minutes and we've covered everything from like teachers, union, start time, budget, newcomers. I mean, you name it, it's on this list. How on earth do you prioritize what gets your attention?
1: Think at the end of the day, it's your your strategic, pl- your vision, right? Your vision, your mission, and your strategic plan. That's probably the hardest part of the job because you know you're gonna have to spend some part of your time dealing with crisis. I mean, that's just a part of it, right? Um, but at some point, like I was having this conversation with my team the other day, like safety should not be a crisis. We should anticipate, when you look at the data of what's going on in our city or any urban city, Unfortunately, we should anticipate, right, that things are going to take place. It doesn't mean you still won't get stressed out, but when you see there's probably going to be more issues happening, you can be proactive in your planning. Okay, how do we deal with, right, if there's a shooting around the school and we need to lock down, how do we deal with, right, the mental health that we need to have at the school if something does happen? Because you can look at the data around and say, if crime is rising, at some point that's going to show up in our school. That's different than a
0: global pandemic, right? We like that caught everybody by surprise. Exactly, we were we were in school on Tuesday and out on Wednesday. Exactly. Whereas there are places where you can be using data. So what I hear from you is that your strategic plan is the is the top is your first. Like that's where you start. That's where you want to be every day. And then your. you know, what you're using is the data around you. Every piece of information you can be gathering to anticipate what else might need to, might, you know, get in the way of that. And how do we prepare for that as well? Does that sound I, about right?
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, it's that high fits like dance floor, balcony or Covey, right? Being yeah. strategic versus like dealing with the crisis. And it takes a minute. This is why I worry about the attrition rate of superintendents because your first year, you're in everything's a crisis because you don't know enough to know, you know what? I, I, that actually may be a big thing for two days and that's going to die down. But that I already see I need to focus my attention. That's a skill set from experience. And so if you look at what's happening in terms of the length of time people are in systems, if people are only there a year and a half, how do we expect to move the needle on retention of educators, on student achievement? And what I think is most important right now is how we're thinking about redesigning what school is. Right. That's not going to happen if people are leaving because they're like, I can't deal with these politics. I don't know how to manage. Um, and so that is, I think, really important. It, it is that ambidextrous component of leadership where you know you're going to have to deal with crisis. I think there's a continuous improvement component of you do it, how do you get better, you know, your muscles so that you can respond in some ways automatically without it taking so much of the like cognitive load of your system so that you can spend, you know, I always say two-thirds. If we can spend two-thirds of our time on our strategy, right? For us, it's the wow. literacy, empowered grads, joyful school, diverse and stable staff. I'd love to spend 85%, but I know I have to, you know, work on our governance structure. You know, there are going to be things that are happening in the city that are going to take your attention and just unfortunate situations that may happen in your school community. So, you know, that's part of it. Um, and then it also comes with like the leadership teams you build over time and the relationships outside of your school so you can say, you know what? We actually don't need to deal with this, right? We can work with our city, our mayor, we can lean on them to deal with this particular situation, right? We, can, we got this wonderful community-based organization or this faith-based organization. Where actually, they have more of the skill to deal with this particular issue Right, but you can't do that if you haven't developed those meaningful, long-standing partnerships.
0: Yeah, um, you keep bringing up the tradition of superintendents. How long have you been the superintendent at, at Oakland? Uh, this is my seventh year. And how? How? I mean, that's long. <laughs> you know that the research that is long. What? What would you say is your number one piece of advice for being able to, to stay in a role like yours for seven years?
1: Um. I think one, the first couple of years, this goes back to some of our women leading ed stuff is like, you you need sponsorships, like this job and any job, I mean, leading any organization isn't just about intelligence, right? It's about surrounding yourself um, with people who can help you learn the job, um, who can help you think through dilemmas, right? Um, Right. Where they can say, that's great, but if you're going to, run that play you need to think about x y and z and sometimes those are former superintendents Um, i have former union leaders i call on faith-based leaders folks in the community it's a range of folks who may have skill sets i don't i don't think i would have been in this job this long if i didn't have whether you want to call it a kitchen cabinet or your circle of advisors um, I'm a big believer in scheduling and time and being really clear, like, what is important to you? I'm a mom. I'm a wife. Um, I was fortunate to have some women board member leaders um, who were like, you need to protect your time. Like, if you pick up the phone on Sunday at 7 p.m. and it isn't an, an absolute emergency you're giving off the vibe that people can reach you 24 hours a day set your limits and i was like oh you're right i'm going to so you know i don't feel like i've ever missed like the most important things for my kids i remember i had one board meeting my son had his like science project i asked you know my board president hey Can I come to the board meeting late? I want to go see my son's science project. I was there for an hour and then I came back to the board meeting. And those are some of the things we talk about in women leading ed. I think as women in particular, we're nervous about um, articulating these boundaries. So then people are like, I can't do the job or they get in the job. And they're so miserable because they feel like they have to make these I have to spend all my time here and none there. You can do that for a year or two, and of course, you're going to leave. And then the third thing, which I would say is the continuous improvement, is like your own health. I've recently gotten into weight training. Um, I'm a big believer in like meditation and prayer. Um, I feel like my grandmother drummed into me like the importance of positive thinking and just manifesting like that was something i grew up with but i think that that piece is extremely important because of the craziness right um that that you're dealing with like you you really have to be able to develop that that zen sense so you can think right
0: (laughs) i i agree i think it's totally this idea of like, you have to be able to like clear to think and be able to find that time um, and taking care of yourself. Um, I love all of your advice, but I'll be honest, I have a different hypothesis. When I was going through your biography for this, um, I could not believe all the roles that you've had. You've been a teacher, an assistant principal, a principal, the head of talent, an assistant superintendent of leadership, a network superintendent, an interim superintendent. I mean, you have done so many roles and I wonder if some of your ability to be strong and stay in the job is you've seen so much. But, I have to wonder, do you think that this is this is typical for someone to get to a superintendent is that it takes doing a thousand jobs beforehand because I don't what What is your experience?
1: No, because for all of those roles, the irony is because I took over the district and we were literally going to be taken over the area of that I didn't have experience in because I was on the academic side, which is what the research shows women typically are come if they get into this role we're right. coming for the academic side but we actually were chief executive officers i run right. a billion dollar organization between the state money money that i fundraise my you know my facilities bonds parcel taxes that is what i had to learn and if if i could have knowing what i know now I would have ensured that I had some more financial experience before I got here. And again, back to my um, kind of group of advisors, I had folks and, you know, Department of Finance, other folks, I mean, I literally was like learning um, how to read financial reports, you know, what to look for. how do I, at one point when I had to make some changes in our operational side, you know, I was learning about the bond market so that I could get our facilities bond passed. And those things are crucial for you to be able to stay um, in your job and, and and do the work. And you can see with declining enrollment, you can see with the movement of ESSER, right, this is becoming a more ubiquitous problem, right, not just, you know, five districts out of the United States, so many districts are struggling with, how do I give this quality of education and remain solvent? Um, And sometimes in education, that isn't the skill set you're necessarily getting trained on before, you know, you land in the seat.
0: I'm so glad you said this. I will say my first role in school leadership, I was in my twenties and I remember being shocked when like the school's budget was just like a, of a school, a very large school was just like all of a sudden mine and yeah. no one, there was no help, There was no, you know, it's I was like, lucky.
1: okay, manage it.
0: <laughs> right. I was really lucky that, um, my husband was a finance person and was willing to help me through that because I had to learn it all on the ground by myself as, as I was like over, you know, everyone's pay. Um, and, and, and so I am so glad that you say that, but I want to make sure that we've also said that, yes, you. Run a billion-dollar organization, but you know I work at a a private company, right? And so when when we need more money, we go do more sales. Getting more kids after your count date doesn't help your budget, right? And I think that that's the other thing that makes this so hard is that it's not just about being able to 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 do your finances; it's also about being able to be constrained in so many ways, and also your finances.
1: But but the finance part of it is one thing. You also need to understand economics. Right, like you have to understand. Okay, our cola's just dropped in California. Right, right. you have to understand. Like, what are the bit? Like, there's there's more to finances than just the budget piece. You have to be able to project. You have to be able to understand the trends of families. I know where one of the reasons we have to continue to project down is I'm looking at the average cost of rent. I'm looking at the average cost of right. home. Right. Exactly. And so, as a family of four right? If the average cost of a three bedroom, two bath home in the Bay area is trending around a million dollars, is it a surprise? Is it really a surprise that you're having families flee, right? Right. So you've got to be thinking about, you have to look at what housing is being built. Are you seeing a lot of houses or are you seeing like more kind of condo complexes? So there's so many pieces that if you were, if you're running a private company, it's like common sense, you have to understand these things. And really, on the education side, you have to understand them, too, more so because your resources are constrained. And you can't go out there and just say, I'm going to go purchase more
0: more students, right? Right. Exactly. Well, and I think that the, the other thread that never that doesn't get enough attention until you're in a really bad place is like the emotional toll too, because yes. in Denver, we have this issue where I live and in Boulder in that we have declining enrollment. Houses are getting more expensive. All yeah. of those things are true, but nobody wants their neighborhood school shut down. Right. Absolutely. We have these buildings that are running with, you know, a, a 10% of the kids they should be, because it is so hard for the community to understand that my school that maybe I went to is where I want my kids to go. And, and I think that's a whole, uh, another thread that is just added to this level of work that you have. Um, and I can't believe that you do it. <laughs> um, and so I have to ask you two other questions about your role. Um, one, you, you said at the very beginning, Oakland is your home. And I remember being a kid and my dad was the principal of the the school that I went to and that like all my friends went to. And like, we'd go to the grocery store and people be like, Oh my God, the principals at the grocery store, which I'm sure is even more so for you. And I, and I'm just curious, do you think it is harder or easier or like what makes it, what's unique about, um, you know, leading in your home?
1: Um, I think it's the best, best of both worlds and it's the worst, right? I mean, um, I feel like I get a lot of qualitative data when I'm just out and about, right? Sometimes I get the data when my kids' friends are over and I'm not doing anything. I'm making pancakes and bacon and I'm just listening to them talking. Sometimes they're talking about things that haven't gone well or just like their experience. I can just glean stuff if I'm at, you know, um, a basketball game or a dance function for my kids. And I I just was in a parking lot yesterday, um, no, a couple of days ago. Um, and I had a parent who I just found out was trying to be a sub. And I got a whole bunch of data about like our onboarding system and some of the challenges with the California Teaching Commission, right? Listening to, you know, some of the challenges she was having in terms of like getting all her paperwork done. So those are like the pluses they're very organic, but I get a lot of information um, in an informal way, right? Because of relationships. Obviously, the, you know, disadvantage is when I have to make hard decisions or controversial decisions. I will hear, you know, the business about that as well. Um, but that all that all comes with it. And I think that comes back to like your practices of self-care, right? right. And routinizing those and, and being somewhat dogmatic and disciplined um, uh, about those. I will say one huge advantage I think of this crazy job is you quickly have to get clear on who you are as a person and your values. And for me, that's a blessing, right? Right. You, You develop thick skin and you're not in this to make friends. I mean, you're not trying to make enemies, but you're trying to do your best to make the best decisions now that are gonna make long lasting impact, right? for the system and the students and families. And that's not gonna always make folks happy. And you have to go through your journey of being okay with that.
0: Okay, well, in your home, you have been um, awarded as one of the, like, what is it, 100 most influential women in San Francisco? Is that right, that you were on that list?
1: Oh, oh, yes, yes.
0: (laughs) Does it feel like, does it feel like that, does that how it feels to you? Do you feel like you're this influential woman or does it feel like you're just doing the day-to-day and trying to keep schools running?
1: I think I felt more like I was doing the day-to-day and trying to keep things running my first couple of years. I I definitely feel like um, I'm at a place where I'm a bit, I I do worry about, you know, and if this is private, traditional public charter, just in terms of, you know, I do think we're, there's some things that we need to get better at pretty fast at scale in terms of these other skills on top of literacy and numeracy for kids to really be prepared, right, for this world that's just changing. I feel like that, that's taking a lot more of my time. Like, you know, what do we do? And I think that those kind of discussions, educators have to have discussions with folks outside of education, right, right. to really figure that, that piece out.
0: Yeah. We've done a lot of interviews with people who are in like the neuroscience field around science of reading and things. And what they talk about the most is like, how do we get schools? How do we do this in a way that is, is beneficial and meaningful to schools? Because so often, and every single researcher and scientist has told us this, the first thing that happens when they get into school is they're like, oh, oh shit, is honestly what they say. The reality is so much harder than I thought. Like I thought I was going to come and tell this teacher all these things I know about about reading. And then like a kid is running out the hall. Someone doesn't have a lunch. A form didn't get signed. He was. It was just like, it's so much more complex than they ever expected. So I think what you're hitting on is totally true that even if we know what we should be doing, how do we get this to teachers? How do we help them? Um, okay. My, uh, the last thing I I really wanted to ask you about this is I I said this before, we've talked about so many things and I think anyone listening has got to be at least a little bit shocked at the things that come into your world every day, whether it's unions or buses or whatever. Um, and so I'm just curious, like when you think about, you know, where, where you look for hope and, and, and what really like fills you up and, and what, what does that look like for you? What is the thing that like is bringing you hope on the hard days, keeping you going, keeping you motivated? What does that look like for you?
1: Um, One are students. I mean, you know, when I'm in school, I mean, when I'm in schools, like, you know, just the talent and the potential of students is rejuvenating Two teachers. Um, You know, when I'm in classrooms, I'm like, dang, I mean, we've got some really talented. I think that is one of the advantages of the spiciness of Oakland is it attracts the spiciness, but it also attracts folks who are so creative. Um, and innovative in in what they're doing. Um, And so being able to see those teachers in action um, is extremely rejuvenating. It's like, okay, gosh, how could we scale this more? And also like a lot of our partnerships, right? It's been um, a joy to be able to work with like Salesforce and Kaiser, right? And Eat, Learn, Play, um, and some of our community-based organizations like Oakland Reach and others. And, and sit there and hustle and tussle and kind of figure out, okay, because they're like, you guys are crazy to work for. And I'm like, I know, but let's <laughs> still work together, you know, um, and then to be able to see what we're able to do. And, you know, as, as the staff, it's like, we couldn't have been able to do that by ourselves, right. you know, and outside, like we couldn't have been able to do that. If we tried to do that out here and hope that all of this stuff was going to happen inside. I think those kind of experiences are like, that's what gives you hope, right? Um, And I'm a believer, like if we want a democracy, we have to figure out how to make public schools work,
0: even if, they evolve, which they have to. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a really fun conversation. I know I'm going to be like talking about Oakland for the next like week and a half. Um, The first question is, uh, the podcast is called More Than a Test. And at Amira, we call it that because, you know, we're measuring literacy every single day by children's voices. And we think there were more than a test, but every guest hears more than a test and thinks of something different. When you heard More Than a Test, what did you think of?
1: I think of... (laughs) continuing to figure out and develop the system to educate the whole child.
0: Oh, that's great. Um, I, tell us about a lit moment in your life. And what we mean by that is a, pic, a moment of you and a book, um, somewhere that like, is like your happy place or changed you, or is just a pivotal moment in your life? Mm,
1: gosh, so, so many. Um, I think more of a teacher that I had, in high school, it was a history teacher um, who started that class off with the phrase, there's no certain truth to history. And we read a lot of like primary sources and secondary sources. And he really taught us to be like critical readers. Um, And that was such a great lesson that I took with me in terms of just being like diligent about, you know, the perspective and bias in every text. So um, that, that's really what I, I felt like that was such a gift to have that
0: um, skill in high school. Do you remember the teacher's name? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, wherever you are, history teacher, thank you. I think that's lovely. And I love that quote. I'm going to save that. Um, a piece of technology you love. I think
1: my like my my phone and just video, I mean, I have teenagers, they're like, mom, stop taking pictures. I'm like, smile, let's have a selfie. Or I need to just get video of the basketball game or the dance performance. So that's my favorite piece right now in this stage of my life.
0: I will say after watching the videos of you talking to your districts in in various circumstances, I think it is really powerful to see you as opposed to like have it written. There's something really valuable of having storytelling like that. And I will also say as a mother of three-year-olds, I'm constantly like trying to catch the funny things. Like my daughter says whittle right now. And I'm like, I know eventually she'll say it right, but it's so cute. So I think it's a great answer. Um, The best advice you've ever been given.
1: My grandmother, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason.
0: Gay Hoagland from Stanford taught me that one, and I use it all the time. Thank you so much to your grandmother and Gay Hoagland. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta shout out her. All right, and one book you think everyone should read? Oh, God, that's such a
1: hard one. Well, I mean, right now I'm just trying to read more fiction. Okay. I just have gotten off of reading fiction. So one book I've read recently that I liked was um, Dele Wed's Destiny. It's just like uh, a book about like three Nigerian women and um, they met in college and then they reunited, I think like 30, I don't know how many years later for one of the friend's daughter's wedding. And that's like the whole story. So I, I feel like me trying to read fiction more is my way of tapping into my creativity. And I try to do it right before bed to kind of get my mind to, to settle. So
0: um, I love that. I one haven't read the book, which is rare on this show. So I'm definitely going to pick it up. And then two, I would say um, I, I like to read fiction right before bed, too, because I, like then my dreams are like that instead of work. <laughs> it's like whatever the book was instead of instead of what I should be doing for work. So I think that's a really good piece of advice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's something I picked up during my sabbatical and I was like, I'm going to, I know I'm not going to be able to read as much, but I'm even if it's just like five, 10, 15 minutes,
0: it makes a difference. It does make a difference. And I think fiction is really an underappreciated, super important way to find empathy, connect with other people. It's so important. So thanks for bringing it up. And thank you for being here. This has been a great conversation. You're obviously super busy. The thousand things we've covered in this conversation is what your real life is. And so it means so much that you made time for us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.